All right, moving along, folks. You're tuning in to the Drew Marshall Show. Unfortunately, if you've found us accidentally, um, like we're okay. It's, a, it's an okay show. It's not bad. Yeah. Right. My Four. brain hurts after that in a good way. No, that was great. What the last conversation? Yeah, it was. It was awesome. We just had a great discussion with Bruxy Cavey, teaching pastor at the Meeting House and author of The End of Religion, and of course his new book Reunion. And uh, in studio also with us is Tal Backman. Uh, recording artist extraordinaire. Tal, uh, thank you for spending so much of your time. You know what? When I decide to go away for a Saturday and not do the show, you should take my show. Why don't you take the whole show? Sure. We'll get some booze in here for one day. What's going on? We'll start the drinking live on air. Behave, behave. Uh, Moving on to our next guest, Robert Thurman. He's the president of Tibet House, and he is also a... uh, uh, professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Studies at Columbia University. He's the author of this new book that I've got in my hand right now. It's Man of Peace, the Illustrated Life Story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. Let me tell you a little bit more about Robert Thurman. This is his uh, maybe third or fourth time on our show, and, and uh, always happy to have him. Uh, he is a friend of the Dalai Lama. Uh, Mr. Robert Thurman, along with actor Richard Gere and some other people, started uh, Tibet House in New York. Uh, Bob is a worldwide authority on religion and spirituality, Asian history, world philosophy, Buddhist science, Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He is an eloquent advocate of the relevance of Buddhist ideas to daily lives, and in doing so, he has become a leading voice of the value of reason, peace, and compassion. He was named one of Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential Americans and has been profiled by the New York Times and People magazine. Uh, Bob Thurman travels internationally, lecturing to universities, companies, conferences, and think tanks. He is a gifted communicator who can make complex concepts understandable, which is why he keeps coming back on this show, that's for sure. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bob Thurman, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well, Drew, and very happy to be with you. Well, uh, I got to say, I was quite surprised when I got this book in the mail. First of all, it is ginormous. Second of all, it's a cartoon. It's a comic That's book. Right. It is a comic book. A graphic novel is a new style nowadays to really hold the people's attention and also reach the young. And I found a lot of older people who really like it, actually. Well, the the graphic part of this, uh, it's not like the old comic books that I used to read. This is like HD stuff, man. Wow. This is really, Lame. really clear. Looks slick. Very slick. Uh, by the way, I'd like to introduce you to Tal Backman. Tal, this is Bob Thurman. Hello, Bob. Hi, Tal. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. Pleasure to meet you. That's great. You, me too. Tal is a big fan of uh, your daughter. He's a big fan of Uma Thurman. Uh, I just wanted to say that right there. I am too. I am too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, uh, it's got, Bob, you must have heard that eight gazillion times. I heard that a lot growing up. My dad's a famous musician. Yeah, yeah. Tal is a, is a son of a, a son of a gun. Uh, no, he's a son of a, a big famous Canadian musician named Randy Backman. Backman Turner Overdrive, taking care of business, all that kind of stuff. Oh, so great! He's had to live in the shadows, just like uh, like your daughter has of you. I think. Hey, what do you think? No, I don't think so. I'm living in her shadow. Okay, that'll work. Um, listen, why? Why did you do this book? Why didn't you, you know, a graphic novel, a, a comic book about the Dalai Lama? Is that disrespectful? Is that, I mean, why? Well, he loves it. Uh, the thing is, he already wrote a couple of autobiographies. And, uh, you know, the young generation won't really read them. And actually, a lot of his fans who are older, I noticed, had not really read them. 
And uh, they were sort of, they, oh, I love the Dalai Lama, but I don't know that. Well, why is he worried about China? Or why does he try to do something for Tibet? What's the problem? This kind of thing. So they didn't really know his real life story. And also he himself, in doing autobiographies, never really tells his own greatness. And how he is the man who reacts nonviolently to almost near genocide that has been occurring for the last 60 years on the Tibetan plateau by the colonial expansion of China. And um, so, you know, I thought I would tell it properly and also do it in a way that would reach younger people because they would see it illustrated. And I've had some older people who said, well, I was reading the autobiographies and I've read here and there. I read most of them. But then I get tired of reading. You know, people nowadays like to have video. They like to have quick um, grasp of things, picture worth a thousand years, uh, words sort of thing. And so the graphic novel, I think, is really emerging as a major medium for adult stories as well. Hmm. And, um, and I was really pleased with our team of five artists who worked on it and made it really alive, you know, so people can really easily get the struggle and the life, the life achievement, if you will, of this Holiness the Dalai Lama, who's such a great, inspiring figure for us, when so, some of our social leaders around the world in the, in the current oligarchy, let's say, or maybe not so inspiring. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> to put it mildly. Although you guys have a wonderful new young guy, and I think that's really great. I hope he does very well. Yes, we have yeah. the we have the prince from Little Mermaid as our prime minister. <laughs> really? Yeah. I didn't know. He lo- that's who he looks like, if people say that. So did you before you did this book, Bob, uh, did you yeah. did you need to get permission from the Dalai Lama? No, I didn't. Well, sort of, you know, in the sense that I'm going to do this, you know, fine, fine, whatever, if it helps, you know. And my <laughs> colleague, my co-writer, years, years ago, he was encouraged when he presented the idea, or actually his wife, his ex-wife, many years ago. Mm-hmm. If it helps, the Dalai Lama said, whatever type of thing. And then in my case, since we've known each other for so long, he's usually pretty happy with what I do. And trust me, in other words, by now. Yeah. And, uh, but and you, so, Bob, you can't, like, do you, he doesn't have a cell phone. Just call him on his cell phone and say, hey, it's Bob. You don't do that, do you? Well, I call on his cell phone to his, uh, his secretary. Yeah. A pretty quick response from him. But, you know, he doesn't answer cell phones. He doesn't have one himself, luckily. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so it's, it just goes like it goes okay. And also, I didn't want him to be, like, to write a foreword or to be co-author and this kind of thing. Because then he would have objected to presenting him as a great person, right. like a he's a humble sort of fellow, and also uh, I wanted to give him deniability in case somebody thought, well, we're showing the sort of ill deeds of the Chinese military in Tibet and the secret police and so on, and um, he, you know, he should be—he's a nonviolent and he wants—he doesn't want them to lose face, he doesn't want them to be angry with him and so on. So I, w- I wanted him to have deniability that he didn't. It's not really, he's not the author. In other right, words. He, right. He yeah. lived the life, but he's not telling it like I'm trying to tell it, like it is, you know, like it was. You know? Sure, he could be like the guy from Hogan's Heroes, where he says, I know nothing. Schultz. <laughs> Schultz? <laughs> That's right, deniability, yep, right? plausible yep. deniability. Um, okay, listen. You know, I have a picture of him and me sitting together, and he's holding the book with a big smile. Well, that's and good. he he likes it. he likes what I do, you know, because we're old buddies. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, listen, uh, Tibet House. I was just down in New York, and unfortunately, my my time got away with me. I was 
I was stolen away by by some friends up in Greenwich, and and uh, and I couldn't make it to Tibet House. I was going to go down there and meet your son oh. and and have a tour, and I feel oh. I feel horrible about that. So since oh. I since I didn't go, what the heck is it? What's Tibet House? Yeah. Well, His Holiness asked uh, me and some friends and one Tibetan guy and another person to make a cultural center for Tibet, not a political, like a lobbying sort of thing, but a cultural center where a destination place where people could go and get a feeling of the physical and visual and artistic presence of Tibet. And also in the future could become a foundation to support Tibetan artists and Tibetan cultural centers around the world. And um, so uh, we tried to start that from, that was from 79, his very first year of coming to the U.S., and then in the mid-80s, luckily, Richard Gere joined us. We weren't getting too far because it's a little bit hard to support Tibet because China doesn't like it. You know, they, they somehow are so insecure in their grip over Tibet that they feel if you promote Tibetan culture, even without a political message in it, uh, they I will be embarrassed by all the cultural destruction they did during the communist sort of social thought reform, brainwashing, class struggle, you know, all that kind of thing, anti-religion, you know. And also, they will people will think of Tibet as a separate entity than China, and they're always trying to claim it always was China, which it never has been, actually, until occupied 60 years ago. It was completely independent, high mountain culture that sea-level people just couldn't even live there, so it was nearly empty. You know? so, um, so he asked us to do that, and we're his official cultural embassy in America. We don't, have, we don't speak for him politically in any way, and we don't encourage whatever the political settlement will be in Tibet, although actually we personally follow the Dalai Lama's wish to remain part of China, but one that has true freedom, culturally speaking and religiously speaking, especially, where they can be Buddhist, you know, and do their own thing up there. And also ecologically speaking, so people from lowland culture who are just want to exploit it by mining or taking the water for you know, for nice clean uh, you know water from an unpolluted place, <clears throat> that they don't overexploit the highland. You know the Tibet, giant Tibetan plateau where all the rivers of Asia arise. You know, so in those respects, he that's his view. He wants to be part of China. He wants them to repair and invest in Tibet, but he doesn't want them to coerce Tibetans and not to and to try to brainwash them to be. You know, communists. Right, right. Okay, so but he doesn't mind. He he actually doesn't mind if they're communists as long as they're spiritual communists. Okay, all right. Um, I just want to introduce you to my co-host again, Tal Backman. But just before, because he's he's chomping at the bit here. He wants to he wants to interrupt. Okay. He wants to interrupt okay. me and take over the show and ask questions. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, but I want to ask you something first. Hold on. Is okay, there okay. is there anything that you and the Dalai Lama disagree about? Uh, yeah, a few things. Um, for example, he has completely resigned from, and his future incarnations also, from any political role in the Tibetan uh, polity, because he's a real democracy fanatic. And in the, and the, and in the community in exile, he has done that, uh, where it's pure election, everything is election. And uh, he, has, he has made a charter for the new local autonomous within China, Tibet, its local government, that he not have any political role even in the future. And I don't agree with that. And I told him, look, uh, Your Holiness, the problem with radical democracy, even in America, is that without a spiritual kind of um, 
uh, figurehead, even if you don't have political go, you don't have to go to the office and make specific political decisions, but you create a kind of model of an honest person who is not for sale without such a person on top, setting a, setting a tone that, that, uh, democracies become theocracies again. He says, yes. what do you mean theocracies? And I said, well, mammonocracy, I said. Then he says, what's mammonocracy? <laughs> and I said, the worship of money. In other words, congressmen and people unfortunately get for sale, the government gets for sale, and you get an oligarchy like, gee, gee whiz, you know where. In many countries today, and especially somewhere they're close by, and that's not healthy. Right. And so people need, and so then he says, well, Tibet would never do that because Tibetan people are too spiritual. So I said to him, Your Holiness, they are too spiritual because you have been setting a tone for them for 350 years as spiritual head of the system. And you didn't have to go and make every decision about every streetlight, but you were a model of what life should be about, of being kind and wise and gentle and educated and tolerant, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so then he used his, um, his leverage in argument against me because he did want to resign. And he said, okay, that's enough. Don't go putting ideas in the... So, oh, yeah. And then I said, anyway, Your Holiness, you can resign now, but your reincarnation will be redrafted by the Tibetan people to be a symbol and, a, and an archetype for them. And then he said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like Princess Di, he said, a prisoner. Uh, uh, well, can I jump in? Yeah, go ahead, Tal. Okay, it's Tal here. Um, well, he would not, uh, just uh, taking your side for the moment, um, not like I have a dog in this hunt, of course, but um, he wouldn't have to be like Princess Diana, but he could be just like a, a really great functional monarch of sorts. This is the okay. argument for constitutional monarchy. And one yeah. thing that might help you in your quest, Bob, if I may presume, is yeah, sure. you, you might want to lay on him. I could even send you a couple of articles. <laughs> but there's been a lot of very good research done by political scientists oh. working in the field of comparative politics about how different governing, governing structures translate into what particular outcomes. And what you find over and over again is that constitutional monarchies are pretty much the best thing going. For for I some of the yeah for some of the reasons that you've you've, you've alluded to here yeah God so he doesn't have yeah so he doesn't have to get muddy he would never or his successor would never have to get into the fray but he would have to in in effect sit atop the fray and represent yes. the aspirations the history the traditions the culture right exactly and mediate in the fray actually because the Tibetans are quite frayful they're yeah. very individualistic there's a famous saying they themselves have which is when your 20 Tibetans are in a room, you have 40 horns, you know, referring to yaks, you know. Right. <laughs> the yak animal is a very strong uh, cow creature who maintains almost a little wildness, you know. So, so yeah, thank maybe, you. Uh, yeah, maybe we can, maybe we can, maybe we can, maybe we can team up and collaborate and we, we can, we can <laughs> get, really great. get him to change it. his mind. I'm totally for that. Because well, you know, the thing is that when you have a monarch who is nice and behaves nicely and people love, and then uh, then the politicians have to have a real program because they can't get by with some kind of cheap charisma. 
built well, up by TV. Well, that's what I'm thinking about. Well, true. And and sorry, Drew, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and kind of along the lines of what you were suggesting earlier, is in the absence of that figure, people kind of fetishize or idolize these other exactly. figures. And you know, there's so. In other words, in the end, what you get down to is you have the human being, and uh, you know, you yes. have this animal, the human being, which cannot yes. be dissuaded from. You yes. know, you, can, you can't talk somebody out of their instincts, right? So you have to yes. accept. You have to accept the human being for what he is, and and craft your your political yeah. or uh, structures around that. Yeah. And so I'm yeah. I'm totally with you on this. And not not like it matters. Another, what it, if you don't have another charisma focus, then you end up with a situation where you have a turkey posing as an eagle. Yeah, yeah, and 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 we haven't even gotten into. <laughs> That sounded like code for Trump. Yes. Oh, no. Couldn't be. Well, anyway, we, should, we need to collaborate on this. I'm all excited oh, about this goodness. new project. I've, I this, didn't think you guys would become friends. I don't, I don't know if I like this. Well, I'm all over this because, uh, anyway. You know, I, why? Why do you care about this so well, much? Well, because I was a political science major. I'm kind of curious about these kind of things. And when you, when you, I love that text. Yeah, when you actually go through the math and you look at the, the, the hard data, this very sure. crystal clear picture mm-hmm. emerges, and, and it's really along the lines of what uh, Bob is suggesting. Yeah, yeah, but you know, America started like out because they had the example of George the Third, who was a really bad king and a bad monarch, and you can have that, and that's of course the worst form. Uh, these oligarchs are like that. Like, look at the Mugabe, Putin. I won't mention locally. These people are nuts, you know, and they don't they don't care. They end up getting so isolated. They don't know the real life situation of the people that they represent and they don't care for them and they don't take care of them. So that's a really worse situation, but a really good one uh, who who demands of the political people that they really take care of and they don't sell themselves to oligarchs. Then like the people in the petroleum industry, then uh, like dark money people here in America today, uh, then you have a good system. So anyway, that's what we have to. We have, that's what we do in America. We have to somehow fake it, you know, because we have that wonderful founding document, checks and balances. But we are now seeing how it can be corrupted by money, which it has. Been. Indeed, and and as and as uh, genius as those those fellows were, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and all those guys, they were working under. Uh, tight constraints. You know, they couldn't do everything that they, you know, exactly. no one person, you know, kind of uh, got his way in that situation. And there were, you know, as I you know, know like uh, disparate <clears throat> colonies that were united really only by those ties to England. They, they, they weren't a country. They weren't a functioning country. They right, thought of themselves right. as uh, Georgians and you know Vermonters and stuff. Right. So sure, anyway, sure. anyway, can I just interrupt you two wise <laughs> gentlemen for a second and just bring the, the content and level of the show down to where you have to dumb it down. Okay, okay. To where you are ho- good at that drill. To where hockey players will understand what we're talking about. Oh sure. Yes, yeah. Um, why does the Dalai Lama laugh so much? Well, because he feels internally happy. And in a way, we, he's like Dante, right? Dante's thing in, the, in the, his time in Italy was the divine comedy, right? In other words, you know, it's a little bit comical, some of the self-inflicted damage that human beings do upon themselves. But he isn't really laughing externally because he's distressed by the suffering of beings actually deeply. And he could be weeping just as well. Mm-hmm. But if we're, if we're looking at that, you know, but he's, in, he's laughing because he has an awareness of the nature of the world and of the universe at the deepest, which is the same as Buddha's, 
that the deepest energy of the universe is actually bliss. Nirvana means happiness, freedom from suffering, bliss, you know. Nirvana is just a conservative way of saying bliss. And so the enlightenment experience, apparently, I'm still hoping, put it that way, knock on wood, is that I hope Buddha was right. But what he said is that the world in reality is bliss. That is your body, the cells in your body, the health in your body, your vital principle is a sort of bliss in your cells. And if you get depressed, that's why you get sick easily when you get depressed or you get the wrong bad diagnosis, your T-cells drop because your positive energy is your health. It is your life energy. And when you become enlightened, apparently, you feel that in the world. And so you naturally have a kind of releasing feeling and you and laughter is an expression of that feeling of relief and release, as you know very well as a, as, an, as a person on media who knows about audiences. And so laughter is where they unite, they give up their sense of looking askance at each other and they kind of enjoy, you know, especially with the shock of a good joke. Right, right. So he feels that way, even when on some level he's aware of how serious situations are. And I've seen him in tears as well. But then, you know, that old expression of laughing through the tears. Yeah. You know, that's when you find something in the heart, you're something in your own sense of being there anyway, still alive, you know, in spite of whatever tragedy you witnessed, where bliss is the true nature. And apparently, he, I, th I hope and I believe he's enlightened, quite enlightened. I don't know how much because I'm not that enlightened. But one of the definitions of that is that future and past are very present to you. So even if he sees someone in a difficult situation, he knows that they will. It'll. He can see the future where it'll work out for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he doesn't give up. He doesn't become infinitely bitter. He doesn't reify a present bad situation. He can see through the suffering and the struggle to a future good outcome. Okay. So, I, I, so that's one of the ways he does. It. I I need to ask you about uh, the yeah. popularity. It seems to me that the the popularity of of Buddhism is rising in direct proportion to the amount of millennials on the planet today and and kind of where oh, i'm going kind of kind of where i'm going with this is it it's not it's a philosophy it's not a religion it's a it's the most kumbaya thing going out there it's the least offensive it's the most hold your hands and light candle you know it's a right now is that offensive when you hear that kind of summation uh no no i agree with that actually even and there i had a not a disagreement but the dog Tamil and I have had a conversation. You know, he's used to being regarded like the head or one of the heads, although Buddhism doesn't have a fixed head. Nobody nobody agrees with everybody in Buddhism. They're also very fragmented, but mm -hmm. uh, he's like one of the senior figures on the planet in Buddhism, so he's considered like a head figure in world religion of Buddhism, so a religious figure, in other words. But and on some level, that's okay. But what Buddhism really is is an education system because the Buddha discovered a reality that can only be accessed to understanding or what they call wisdom, deeper understanding, you know, wisdom, knowledge as a deep knowledge, which is wisdom and uh, knowing what reality is. So I always say Buddhism actually is being realistic and, and it's an education to get rid of unrealistic brainwashing that we grow up with in authoritarian societies about how we can't know anything, we can't Reality is dangerous. You have to hide from it or be protected by some leader or something like that. And, and uh, instead, 
we look at, you know, ignorance is not bliss. We look at reality and we discover reality as bliss and ignorance causes suffering. So because of that, Buddhism is not trying to change everybody into Buddhists. Buddhists is offering services, psychological services about how you can open up your mind to really understand yourself and others and have a happier time. You know, social services, uh, although they're backward on that. The Dalai Lama really loves the Christians for their hospitals, colleges, for lay people. You know, a lot of this and uh, social service work, missionary activity that isn't just seeking converts, but also seeking opening hospitals in, in tribal areas or where there are diseases. And right. things. He loves that aspect. And he's always challenging his Buddhist monks to be more activists in societies like that right right okay and, but but here here's yeah. the thing if 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 there was a deserted island somewhere and on this island were the leaders of a few of the few of the tribes so yes. you, you you get um, gandhi you yes. get you get the dalai lama yes and um you get i don't know billy graham uh-huh um it <laughs> seems like the world is tired of hearing from christians about their religion, but seems to be very open to hearing from the Dalai Lama or quoting Gandhi until the incense burns down. <laughs> well, you know, you know, the thing is that Billy Graham ha- had a deep mission and a wonderful positive energy he got from the archetype of Jesus, who was very much loved the others, you know. You know, the real drive, the real reason Christianity has been so successful in the world is that Jesus gave a teaching like the Dalai Lamas or Buddhas or Gandhis, which is love your enemy. Don't bomb your enemy. He didn't say bomb your enemy. He said love your enemy. And and everyone thought that's really nice, but not practical. Let's make some bombs. But but still underlying people realize that well it's really you can never end the bombing because they're gonna counter bomb, you're gonna get terrorism, it's unending. So it's a vicious cycle. So really, and love, if you define love the way Buddhists do, and I think Christians do what they call agape in Greek, in St. Paul, it means altruism, where you want the enemy to be happy. So the idea there is if the enemy was, the only reason the enemy is your enemy because he thinks you're blocking his happiness. You're standing in his way, you have his land, you have his money, you have something he wants. And so he hates you and he's your enemy. If he was happy himself, he wouldn't bother to go and be your enemy. So loving him is a practical thing, actually, meaning could please be happy without bothering me, that means, <laughs> so, on your own. That's why Christianity was so successful. So when Billy was on the island, after giving some serious sermons to Gandhi and the Dalai Lama, Gandhi and Dalai Lama said, okay, we love you, Billy. We, it's great. It's cool. We love Jesus, too. No problem. Great. Now let's just hang out and let's. Let's find some, you know, let's find something to drink and eat. And let's take up. So, Bob, sorry, Bob, it's Tal here. Quick question for you. Yeah. Just so uh, along these lines, and I, we have this book here, The Man of Peace and stuff. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, you know, is there a then, you know, a, a deep commitment to pacifism? And if so, how do you and the Dalai Lama view kind of the, the tradition of the Buddhist warrior? Well, they, the Buddhist warrior is a minimalist, actually. They don't really like the idea of the Buddhist warrior. The, the real principle of the Buddhist warrior is conquer thyself and be in control of your own hatred and anger and lust and greed and your negative things so that you're totally positive to such a degree that you're not afraid of death, actually. 
because you know your positive energy will go on with your soul into positive future existences. So that's the ultimate Buddhist warrior. However, <clears throat> Buddhist nonviolence, which, which the book, the Man of Peace book, so abundantly shows how in reaction to the colonial and the militaristic violence by the Chinese army in Tibet in the last 60 years, the Dalai Lama reacts nonviolently and he says, I want dialogue, I'm not your enemy. He tries to speak to the Chinese leadership, to Deng Xiaoping, to Mao. <clears throat> it's all right, you know, we don't have to kill each other. Please don't destroy our temples and our dharma. We can be friends and we can do business with you, no problem. But they, got, they're too, they were too insecure, you know, because <clears throat> materialism is never content. It always wants more land, more money, more something, you know. Mm. It doesn't have a way of being content. So, so um, we show that in the book, how he's reacting to violence nonviolently. However, in the Buddhist uh, theory of um, nonviolence, they do have the concept of surgical violence, mm. which, which means, you know, if a snake bites you on the hand, you immediately cut your veins and your arm and suck out the bad blood so the poison doesn't get to your heart and you're being rather violent to your arm that you know surgery that's surgery right and similarly if some guy is about to kill a lot of people or something and you can stop them hopefully without even killing that guy and save those lives and even save that guy from taking those lives you should do so forcefully and right. it's and that that's the root of the martial arts you know yeah. grasshopper right you know yeah you what was that guy's name when you can yeah, take a pebble from my hand, grasshopper. Yes, grasshopper. Don't be mad at those cowboys. Just be <laughs> nice to them. And then if they get too bad, throw them out the window on their own yeah, violence. That's right, on their you. own violence, but what, don't really kill them. What, and was, they will what was the actor's name? Uh, Kane. Carradine. Yeah. Uh, Carradine, that's right. David Carradine, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah David yeah, Carradine. Yeah. It was originally supposed to be Bruce Lee, actually. I don't know if you know the history, wow. but uh -oh. he was cheated out of it because some great person said, oh, no, you can't have an Oriental in a... In a, in a movie like that. Anyway, never mind. Wow. So, so uh, anyway, he did, David Carradine did a good job. He was a great grasshopper. Well, listen. Oh, man. Bob, I, I always love talking with you, and we always run out of time, but I want to thank you for putting together this book again. Man of Peace, of course, and uh, uh, you, you want to go to uh, to Bob's uh, website. It is simply bobthurman.com, bobthurman.com. And, Bob, I look forward to the next time we have you back on the show. Thank you, Drew. I love it, and me and Tao are going to take over one of these days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, exactly. I, I, I'm going to send. I'll Whenever send you want to break. <laughs> okay, I'll send you a message. We should chat. All again. right, you guys. Enough out of you okay. two. Stop it. I love it. I love you. Thank you so much, Drew. And come see me next time. Okay, Bob. We will for sure. Thank you, sir. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Okay, bye, -bye. bye, Bob. Bye. All right. A short break on our show when we're moving along. Boy, there's a lot of uh, thinking going on here today. We're not used to this, Tim. Huh? <laughs> Stay with us.